0: Let's begin this morning by reading from Matthew chapter 25, verse 1, and I'll read through verse 30 this morning. Jesus said to his disciples, Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, no, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast and the door was shut. Later, other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, Open up for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, "'Master, you entrusted two talents to me. "'See, I have gained two more talents.' "'His master said to him, "'Well done, good and faithful slave. "'You were faithful with a few things. "'I will put you in charge of many things. "'Enter into the joy of your master.' "'And the one also who had received the one talent "'came up and said, "'Master, I knew you to be a hard man.' "'reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. "'And I was afraid, and went away and hid your talent in the ground. "'See, you have what is yours.' "'But his master answered and said to him, "'You wicked, lazy slave. "'You knew that I reap where I did not sow, and gather where I scattered no seed. "'Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, "'and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest.' Therefore take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the 10 talents for everyone to everyone who has more shall be given and he will have an abundance but from the one who does not have even what he does not what he does have shall be taken away throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray together and ask God to help us this morning as we examine it together. We pause once more in this worship service, our God, to acknowledge you and to also acknowledge that we have no good except that which comes from you. Your word is in of itself powerful, accompanied by your spirit, able to give life but we would recognize this morning that our hearts are so hard we are so often so set in our ways that short of a mighty work of God we will not be changed so please change us O God to be more like your son help us Lord Jesus to listen and to understand what you have said this morning That we may be found among the prudent and the faithful. In your name we ask, Amen. Christmas is a time of looking back, isn't it? For nearly 2,000 years, the Church has been, the Church of Christ has been looking back and thanking God for that moment unlike any other the mystery of the incarnation when the eternal son of god one with the father in a moment in time conceived of the holy spirit in the womb of mary took to himself humanity became a man became like us as we sang this morning to live for us and to die for us christmas every christmas is a looking back at that irreplaceable Moment when the Son of God became Son of Man. It is right for us to do so. In fact, it's actually a biblical pattern for God's people. We are always, if we are biblical people, we are always a people who are looking back and remembering God's faithfulness. Israel of old was instructed and even commanded to always be a people who looked back and remembered what God had done, bringing them out of Egypt, sustaining them in the wilderness, helping them with the conquest of the land and so forth. So we are, as Christians, a people who look back. We are a people, unlike our culture, which is caught up in the here and now and has very little interest in the past. We are, if we're biblical people as Christians, a people who are looking back and remembering what God has done. In this Christmas season, we rejoice, as we sang this morning, that the Son of God became Son of Man to be our Savior. However, at the same time, biblical Christianity looks forward. A true celebration of Christmas includes remembering and celebrating the purpose and intent, which is the salvation of sinners, but the bringing in of the kingdom, of the promises. That God had made concerning the kingdom and the reign of God on earth in and through his son. In other words, a biblical Christmas will be marked also by looking forward. Looking back at the moment when the son of God became a man. Looking forward to the future, the yet to happen event when Christ will come as the angels said When the apostles, the disciples on Acts chapter 1 were looking up and the angels told them that Christ will return in a similar way in the clouds with great glory, Jesus is coming again. That is the consistent testimony of the scriptures. It is the witness of the New Testament, so much so that if we are Christians and if we are churches, that do not think often about the coming of Christ, that do not live with an expectation or anticipation of the second coming of Christ. We are actually malformed, misshapen Christians and churches. And I fear that's the case in our day. We are a generation, at least here in the West, where we are caught up with the here and now. We are obsessed with our own little moment. We are increasingly ignorant of our past And we are increasingly, in the evangelical church, very little interested in what the Bible has to say about the future. But this is what God has revealed. And this is what God has chosen for the display of his glory. His son came the first time to save sinners and to atone for their sin, but he came with the very intent of saving them from their sins to be his people so that he could come a second time and in his kingdom there would be a people for his own praise and to the praise of his father. Jesus is not done. The king, he is the king and he is risen from the dead. He is reigning right now at the right hand of his father but make no mistake, he has zero intention for his kingdom to be merely spiritual. He is coming in the flesh. He is coming glorified. And his two feet that have been pierced are going to touch down on this little globe again. And he will be as is his name, King of kings and Lord of lords. And he will, as Zechariah the prophet through God prophesied through Zechariah he will be king over all the earth. This is the Christmas story. This is what we celebrate is looking forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ to this earth to reign as king. Now the disciples, as they were with Jesus in his last days, in the last week of his life, as we're learning here in the Gospel of Matthew, they understood that the Scriptures had prophesied it. God had promised that that one would come to fulfill the promises made to David to reign on earth. They expected a literal physical kingdom on earth. And Jesus does nothing to 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 crush or to uh, to silence their expectations. He does, if anything, he builds them. He feeds their anticipation but we've been learning in Matthew chapter 24 and following that when Jesus's disciples asked him about the sign of his coming and the end of the age, that Jesus gave to them certain indicators. And several weeks ago, actually really over the last month or so, we've been examining this Olivet Discourse together. And we've learned that Jesus was really only giving his disciples more detail and more information to add to what had already been revealed by God through the prophets in the Old Testament, particularly Daniel. But there is yet one seven-year period of time that Jesus refers to as the tribulation, the second half of it as the great tribulation that is yet to occur. This must happen. These things must be fulfilled. And We've seen together that no Straightforward reading of Jesus' words can possibly mean that these things have already been fulfilled. While there have been in the past, in 70 AD, in the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans, and through the unfolding centuries of history, there have been foreshadowings of this great cataclysmic period of time yet to come. Nothing has happened on the scale of what Jesus says. And Jesus declares that all these things will take place. And they are remarkable. They are demonstrative. They are unmistakable. And after he describes this seven-year period of time, Jesus says in verse 29 of chapter 24, immediately after the tribulation of those days, so on and so forth. So what we're examining now is, is, he says, rather, not so on and so forth. He says, after the tribulation of those days, there will be a sign in the sky, and verse 30, the sign of the Son of Man will appear. It's after the tribulation that Jesus will come. And yet, his coming, even after the tribulation, will not be such that you could have set your clock ticking for seven years and exact minutes and seconds, and then you know that's when Jesus is going to come. For Jesus is very clear, verse 36, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. The exact moment after the tribulation, when Jesus will return to reign physically on this earth, is unknown to anyone. Even those who will have gone through the tribulation will be those who are looking for the believers looking for the coming of Christ but they will not be able to set their clocks exactly so even they must be have a sense of expectancy of of being alert and then to underscore the necessity of his disciples in every age to be ready for his coming Jesus uses six illustrations I just want to pause. We may think, well, if Jesus is teaching that the tribulation must take place, there's certain certain things that must take place that have not taken place. Then why do we need to be ready for his coming? Well, first of all, we'll just say whatever your view of of the rapture, of of what Paul teaches in First Thessalonians of our being gathered to meet the Lord in the clouds, whether you're pre-trib, as our church teaches, mid-trib, post-trib, or you don't know, um, we must recognize that the teaching of Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, it indicates that believers of all ages are to be characterized by an expectancy of his coming. We are to be looking for the second coming of our Lord. It is, and this is not the purpose of our time this morning, But it is interesting that you combine that reality that Jesus and the New Testament constantly insists that believers should be ready for his coming. And then you understand that a pre-tribulational rapture of the church to meet the Lord. I believe the Lord could come for us to meet him in the clouds at any moment that the church will be with Christ during that seven year tribulation And then immediately after the tribulation, some period after that, is what Jesus then is talking about, his actual physical second coming return to touch down on this earth. But irrespective of your understanding or position on the tribulation, the imminent coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is an absolute Christian doctrine. We must hold to the expectation that our Lord could return for us at any moment we must be ready so while these teachings here in the Olivet Discourse may have special particular relevance and application for a future generation that remnant that Isaiah speaks of who will go through the tribulation come to faith during the tribulation and who will endure through that while these words may have special relevance for them they are for all of us here this morning who profess faith in Christ and if we do not profess faith in Christ there are lessons here this morning we must be ready for the coming of the Lord and Jesus is a master teacher as you would expect and he uses six illustrations The first we saw in verse 33 is the uh, illustration of a fig tree, verses 32 and following, the parable of a fig tree. And each of these illustrations, also be careful, don't read too much detail into it. There's there's some commentators and even some study Bibles that, that try to really latch on to various details and to say this detail means this and this detail means that. I'm not inclined to go that route. I think Jesus is using an illustration, as he typically does, to send home one main point, one main idea. He didn't give the illustrations to add confusion. He didn't give illustrations to add speculation. He gave illustrations, parables, in this case, to his disciples to reinforce a very plain An important truth. The first one was the parable of the fig tree, that namely that when uh, the believers living in those days in the tribulation see those signs that Jesus has clearly delineated, be recognized, Jesus says, verse 32, that the Son of Man is near, that he is right at the door. I mean, just be ready. The second illustration is the days of Noah. In verse 37 the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah and that teaching there reinforces the fact that even though the scriptures have announced the second coming of Christ even though men and women have had plenty of announcement just like Noah preached the coming of judgment for many many years. And those people living in his day could see the ark and he was building it. What do you, they had plenty of opportunity to ask "What's that's about. What's that about? They knew the judgment was coming. They nonetheless rejected the message and they just carried on with life as usual and were caught off guard. And it was sudden. The flood was sudden and it was too late. The door to the ark was shut. And the whole earth part perished except for Noah and his family. It just reinforces the fact that the coming of the Son of Man, the second coming, will be sudden. A a third illustration is in verse 43. The head of the house who doesn't know what time a thief is coming. I, I suppose you could say back up in 40 and 41, these two women Uh, But that's really illustrating the the nature that um, God will separate those who are his from those who are not his. There will be an instantaneous separation and delineation between the people of God and the people apart from Christ at his coming. But in verses, verse 43 is a third illustration. The fact that we saw this a few weeks ago. Uh, If a house owner knew what time a thief was going to show up and steal all the Christmas presents, uh, he wouldn't be asleep. Um, But the son of man, his return is coming in an hour, verse 44, when you do not think he will. So be alert. That's the simple message. Excuse me. So the first three parables or illustrations underscore this truth. No one knows except the Father the exact moment when Christ will come again to this earth. It will be following what Jesus describes in the tribulation. Excuse me. But no one knows the exact time, even those who go through it. It will come suddenly, unexpectedly. And those first three illustrations underscore that simple truth. The next three illustrations or parables then teach how we should live in light of that truth of the soon coming of our Lord at a moment when we do not expect. Jesus then transitions to instructing his disciples and all who will listen this is how you should live. The first of those three is in verses 45 and following of Matthew 24. The faithful and sensible slave and the wicked slave who thought his master was a long ways off in verse 48 is not coming for a long time. I mean, if you're banking on that, that's just a bad investment strategy. Uh, my, my master, Jesus, isn't coming for a long time. Um, it'll at least be after the tribulation. So I, I, you know, I can live like I want. That's just dumb. I know that's a strong way of putting it, but that's just dumb. It's even dumb, it's foolish to live that way when you don't know when you'll die. You have no idea when you'll die. That's not, that's not morbid, that's not spectacular, that's not, it's just, just fact. You have no idea, I have no idea when I will die, and I have no idea when my Lord will come for me. And so Jesus just underscores that first illustration, don't reason with yourself oh that's a long ways off I don't have to worry about it you don't know you need to live with the expectancy that he's coming at any moment this morning now we will examine in chapter 25 the two remaining parables the parable of the 10 bridesmaids or the 10 virgins and then the three stewards the one who receives five talents the second receives two talents and the third receives one talent. So that's the focus of the remaining of our time. But again, Jesus is reinforcing in these parables how we should live now in light of this truth that he is coming at any moment, to live with a moment expectation of his coming. How do we live in light of the truth that the, sec- the coming of Christ for his church and after the tribulation to this earth is at a moment that no one knows, not even the father. First of all, let's look in verses 1 through 13 at the parable of the ten bridesmaids. That's what these ten virgins are. They are, they are part of the bridal party. We, our family enjoyed a, uh, the wedding of our oldest daughter this past summer. Many of you assisted and helped us so graciously. Uh, it's a team effort as we learned and we knew that but I mean it was just so many of you helped us and I mean a wedding is a big thing and it should be It, it it really should be a celebration not only by the couple and by the parents ideally but by the by the church if you're in a church and by it's a it's a wonderful event and in these times in Jesus's day um This would be the biggest event there was in town. This would be this would be a joyous occasion. This would be a time when everybody would be planning on taking part of the feast. And the Jewish wedding process would be that there would be a um, agreement, a betrothal. And often that was carried out by the parents or by the fathers. Kids, just remember that. And uh, you think you're having a rough uh, well, I, as far as I know, there's, there's no one here choosing your, your spouse. We should have input, but but they would actually, uh, you necessarily wouldn't have much choice who you, you, you would marry. And uh, there was the betrothal and the engagement, which was a legally binding agreement. This was like Joseph and Mary before they were engaged and they were not, uh, the marriage was not consummated um, but that was a very serious, legally binding engagement. So we learn early in the Gospel of Matthew that Joseph was, was working, and when he found out that Mary was pregnant, he was working to how he, how he could effectively divorce her. We think, what do you mean divorce? You're only engaged. Well, at this time, at this process, even an engagement was a legally binding agreement. Of course, the third stage, if you will, was the, the wedding itself the time when after a period of time the groom would come and he would he may have been from another town as he is in this case as Jesus tells and the bride would be with her parents in her home and it would be this big deal where the groom would come and remember okay there's no there's no phone there's no email there's no, you know, texting. He's just about here. <laughs> None of that. All right. So there's just been an agreement that on such and such a day, the wedding will take place. And this, in this case, the groom is coming from some distance and he is delayed for some unknown reason. That could happen. I mean, I mean, maybe he didn't have a flat tire, but maybe he had a His mule or horse broke something or or maybe, you know, he got he had he was nervous and his stomach was upset (laughs) for the wedding. Who knows? We know what it's like. Any number of things can hinder you. So no one has any ability to know he's running late and the groom would come to the town and and the bride would be in her parents home. But she would have a bridal party. I mean the her bride's maids and and they would be to assist her, but also to add to the the fanfare and the celebration and in this case, there were ten and um, so it's a large wedding party and it's it's a joyous thing and ten was was a significant number in Jewish culture. there was a minimum of ten men needed to make up a synagogue. it was a um, number that was sufficient to give a testimony that something official happened. So interesting that it's ten bridesmaids. And these, these are virgins, but they are a part of the bridal brides uh, bridesmaids. They are bridesmaids, and they're helping, assisting the bride. And it would be part of the, the celebration that whenever the groom did show up at the city gates, they would have lamps or, or possibly torches. The word can also be translated, you know, torches. And these are just, you know, it's, it's in the evening, and you can imagine it's just this, everybody's expecting. And, and, you know, who doesn't like candlelight and lamps and torches in the evening? And it adds an ambiance, right, and a beauty. And... and um, And so it would be a way of honoring the groom and these bridesmaids would go before the groom and everyone would know he's here. He's here. He's here. It was a great honor for these young women to be asked to be a part of the bridal party. And so 10 were invited and they took verse one of chapter 25, their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Didn't know when he was going to come, so it was their job to have their materials and to be ready for at any moment when he would come. It would be a great disgrace if the groom would come to the town of the bride and nobody's there to greet him. But five of them, Jesus tells us, were foolish and five were prudent. Now right there, understand... That as we go out the doors today, every single one of us, whether we like it or not, will fall into one of those two categories. As we respond to the teaching of the Lord Jesus, Jesus is making clear there's two kinds of people in response to his coming. The foolish and the prudent. And how we respond to Jesus' words and how we live will determine whether we are foolish or whether we are prudent This is not a lesson on ancient Middle Eastern bridal practices, wedding practices. Jesus is teaching to bring home a point to both instruct and warn. Five foolish, five prudent. What differentiated between them? Their smarts? Their SAT scores? No. That's not the distinguishing characteristic. It's whether or not, here's the key word, they were prepared. Prepared. Jesus is teaching about the need to be prepared for his coming. To not be caught unprepared. And the only reason the five foolish bridesmaids were caught off guard is because they did not take care to prepare 5 the prudent verse 4 took oil and flasks along with their lamps you needed this this is basic this is not this is not something that you know, only the super, you know, kind of prepared people. You know, those kind that when you go camping or when you go on any kind of trip, like you ask for anything. They're like, oh, yeah, I got that. You know, I, I need a I need an X-ray. Oh, no, don't, don't worry. I got a little mini X-ray machine here in my backpack. You know, that kind of person. <laughs> Jesus isn't talking about that here. He's he's this is very basic. Like everybody like you, you if, if you're a bridesmaid, you you prepare yourself, get yourself together and you're at the city gates, and you have two things. You have a lamp, and you have oil to fill your lamp. That's all you have to do. That's all your job is. It's not complicated. I mean, if, if you don't get oil for your lamp, it's like, I suppose in modern-day terms, you had a whole year to figure out how you're going to be dressed, and the morning of the wedding, all you have is a pair of torn jeans and an ugly, dirty T-shirt. You say, wow, I have nothing to wear. Um, You had a whole year and you were given an honor and you didn't prepare. They didn't prepare. They didn't have the oil, the foolish ones, the prudent ones. It wasn't hard. Notice this. This wasn't. Jesus isn't putting an extreme demand. This isn't hardcore Christianity. This is just getting ready. Just get ready for the coming of your Lord. Be prudent. They got their oil. They had their lamps. But verse 5, the bridegroom was delaying. Now it's interesting, without reading too much into it, Jesus, isn't it, when we know from now, isn't it interesting that he at least was putting the idea in his disciples' heads that when they ask the question, what is the sign of your coming in the end of the age, he's at least introducing the idea that his second coming could appear to be delayed. He's at least introducing the idea that his coming is imminent. You need to be ready, but also recognize that it may appear from your standpoint that it's delayed. Now, we're here this morning. I think we would all agree it seems from our perspective like the second coming of Jesus is delayed, right? Like, come on, Lord, oh, Lord, come. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Of course, it's not delayed. And I remind you of two weeks ago we we examined this, that Jesus in his ministry taught on basis of some of the prophecies in the teaching of Moses who lived nearly 2,000 years before Christ. So even though 2,000 years is a long period of time, we understand from a biblical perspective, from God's perspective, it's really not a long period of time but Jesus is at least introducing the idea here. It could be that there is a longer than anticipated period of time before his second coming. So the bridegroom's delayed. We don't know why, but because he was delayed, the bridesmaids are there and they all got drowsy and began to sleep. Now, that's notice that the it's not a rebuke. If you've been up all day and, and you're excited and It's going on towards midnight, and who wouldn't start to doze off a little bit? The issue in this illustration is not that they began to sleep. The issue is that they were not prepared, five of them were not. Because at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom come out to meet him. Now this is unexpected. Um, This is not typical. Just like today, most of the people would have been Asleep long before midnight there's no street lights there's no electricity so so midnight is a very unusual unexpected time this is not the usual course of events but the groom apparently he was delayed but he is determined (laughs) he had set with the father of the bride a certain day on which the wedding would take place a certain time and he has come at midnight and he is ready to marry his bride let the festivities begin who cares if it's midnight it's going to be an evening meeting a a night uh, rather a wedding and a joyous occasion so there's a city gatekeeper and he shouts out behold the bridegroom come out to meet him Well, this is the job of the bridesmaids. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. But the foolish, verse 8, said to the prudent, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. They lit them, and within a few moments, they were starting to go out. Because they hadn't done the very basic, wise thing of just making sure they had oil for their lamps. And the prudent, in verse 9, answered the five prudent bridesmaids, They they weren't being mean. They weren't being unkind. They just answered with the truth. There will not be enough for us and you also. It's just the truth. They are maybe kind. They are maybe generous. But they have a responsibility and they are not going to fail in that responsibility because of the poor preparation of the foolish bridesmaids. So no, they they tell the truth. We're not going to share because we won't have enough to fulfill our responsibility. So, your only option is to go to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. Well, what's the problem? What time is it? What time is it in the parable? Midnight. Um, Thanksgiving. How many stores were open? Not many, even in our culture. Gas stations. So if you need gas, but even among those, there could be a lot of gas stations that are closed. Have you ever been in that experience? Oh, man, I forgot to fill up with gas before Thanksgiving Day. Is there a gas station that's open? Of course, now we can look on our phone maybe and find it. But, but there's no dealers of oil in their right mind who are out selling oil at midnight. So it's impossible because of the foolishness of these five Foolish bridesmaids and their lack of preparation and looking forward to the coming of the groom. They are unable to meet the groom. So they go off. Verse 10. I mean, it's, it's an impossible. It's a futile task. They were going away to make the purchase. While they were going away. Verse 10. The bridegroom came. It'll be too late. If you wait for the coming of Christ you're waiting then I'll get my act together then I'll change then I'll start believing then I'll repent of sin then I'll be ready for Jesus then it will be too late those who were ready verse 10 went in with the groom to the wedding feast and the door was shut and later the other virgins came they apparently found some oil somewhere much later maybe it was early morning by that time And they said, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. He, at the very least, was offended by their lack of preparation. They had dishonored him, they had dishonored the bride. This was a great offense. By their lack of preparation, it basically revealed that these five foolish bridesmaids had no regard for the bride and had no regard for the groom. They had zero interest in fulfilling their responsibility with dignity and honoring the groom who was coming. They were careless about it. They had the appearance of being bridesmaids, but they were shams, frauds. like those who profess faith in Christ but have no true love for him, those who profess faith in Christ but have little interest in things concerning his coming, whose interest is only in here and now and comfort here and now. These five foolish virgins, these bridesmaids, not only were unprepared, but by their unpreparation, They showed their dishonor and disregard for the groom and the bride. And therefore, the groom rightly and justly denied them entrance. They had dishonored not only him, but his bride. They had one basic duty, and they failed knowingly and intentionally to fulfill it. And therefore, he said, I do not know you. He denied them. He cut them off. He shuts them out. And Jesus's point is made clear in verse 13. This is the point of the parable. Be on the alert then. You do not know the day or the hour. To be on the alert is not to somehow just look up the sky. To be on the alert is is very clear by the illustration, will become clear in the next parable, is to consider who Christ is, to trust in him, and then to be aware of what is your responsibility as his man or his woman, and to tend to your duties so that you are not caught off guard, but prepared When he comes, when you either die and go to be with him at a moment you do not expect, when he comes and you meet him in the clouds with the church, when you are with the church, when you are with him, that you are ready to live on the alert, to not put off to some other time what must be done now, what must be done today. The next parable illustrates this same truth, but a little more pointedly. The parable of the ten bridesmaids underscores the fact that we need to be prepared, we need to stay awake. The next parable that Jesus shares is the parable of the talents, as it's entitled in my Bible, maybe it is in yours. Jesus then refers to verse 14 for it is just like a man. What is his coming? He's, he's illustrating the unexpectancy of his coming and the need to be prepared. His second coming. It's just about like a man about to go on a journey who calls his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. This is a very common illustration in the Roman Empire. Slaves were uh, very common. Slaves were uh, Slavery certainly was often abused. But Slavery is not always in the scriptures what we think of when we think of slavery in terms of in the United States and the horrible abuses of slavery and racial slavery and ethnic, just horrible. Slavery in the scriptures in the Old Testament was actually um, mandated by the law of God, not mandated, but overseen by the law of God. Masters were to care for their slaves were to treat them in a certain way. And, of course, the year of Jubilee, in Israel, all slaves were to be set free. But in the Roman Empire, there were sometimes good masters, there were bad masters. But slaves, uh, your alternative to being a slave, it was almost like a form of employment. It was a way in which you could have a roof over your head, you could have food, you could have care. Otherwise, you were out in the street. So a master was about to go on a journey. He has three slaves that he calls and he gives to each of them various amounts of his funds, of his resources. The talents is a, is a great deal of money. It's a significant amount of money. And the first steward, slave rather, receives five talents. The second slave receives two. And the third one receives the one. And the parable is simple. We don't need to elaborate on it the first one takes those five talents and while his master is away he thinks to himself when my master comes back what would most please my master uh, my master has entrusted me with these funds I am a steward so what must I do and he he thinks to himself well I'm going to invest those five talents verse 16 he trades with them, and gains five more talents. He is a steward and wisely invests what he's been given for the gain of his master. His mind is, how can I do the most I can to please my master when he returns? So that when he returns, I not only have his five talents, but I have more than that. The second slave, same thing. He received two talents, verse 17, and he gained two more. He did the same thing. He didn't have as much as the one with five, but the two that he had, he didn't covet. the. He wasn't jealous of the slave who had five talents. He didn't complain and say to himself, well, I only have two. He has five. He just reasoned to himself, my master has entrusted to me these two talents, this amount of funds, this amount of gift and resources I'm responsible for, What can I do to do the most that I can to invest these these funds to be a steward so that when he returns, he will be pleased? Different amounts, same attitude in the first two slaves. But then the third one, verse 20, I'm sorry, verse 18, went away, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money now some of us here have a very low risk level and when it comes to investments and so we're thinking purely in terms of finances we're thinking I like this guy I mean just just safe no risk none of this stock market stuff I mean that's just good dig the money at least it's safe (laughs) that this parable Jesus be really clear Jesus here is not teaching principles on financial investing. That is not his point at all, at all. It's about being ready for his return. And by digging the money, digging a hole and putting the money in it, it's it's indicating that the slave had no intent to do anything other than look out for his own skin he had little regard for his master, no intention to serve him or do anything with what he'd been given. The stewardship, the gift, was just something to be dug and put, put in a hole in the ground, forgotten. And it's also perhaps an indication that he really didn't think seriously his master was going to come and he any time soon. So just dig a hole, put it in it, and it's not much. I mean, I don't have five. I don't have two. I only have one. So So just, you know... I'm just going to dig a hole and get on with my life. That describes a lot of Christians. A lot of Christians. Or at least professing Christians. Professing faith. Oh, yes, I believe that God gave His only, unique, begotten, eternal Son who became a man who lived a life and suffered, bled, and died to bear my sins on the cross, who died, who rose who is king of kings, and professing this with the mouth, been given the gift of the gospel, the gift of the scriptures, been given opportunities, but because they just live for here and now with no mind to the return of the Lord, they're like this third slave who professes an allegiance to the master, but actually, it's revealed by their response, they actually have no regard for the master. Verse 19 After a long time, the master of those slaves came. Now, that's another indicator interesting that Jesus is he's building in his disciples the attitude I need to be ready for the coming of my Lord at any moment. And Jesus is also introducing the idea that it could be a long time. He comes, finally, the master, and he, set, and he settled accounts with the slaves. And you know the story. The one who received five talents comes to the master, says, I earned you five talents. The master says, verse 21, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Jesus here is teaching about faithful stewardship. Stewarding whatever time we have with whatever God has given us for the maximum impact and pleasing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Second slave, same Scenario: He comes up with not only the two talents, but the two more that he earned. And the master said, same thing, I've put you in charge of a few things. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. There's a little teaching here as well, without reading into the text too, here too much. It just it is in keeping with the rest of the scriptures that those who trust God now and believe in the gospel... And who live for God faithfully will be rewarded by God. And rewarded in a way that we maybe can't fathom, we can't understand, but we will be rewarded. Let's put it this way you, you cannot outgive God. You cannot outgive God financially, you cannot outgive God with your love, with your talents, with your time, with your service. Whatever we do in the service of the Lord Jesus Christ will come back to us many, many, many fold times over unto eternity. So the first two slaves are faithful, but then the third slave comes up to the master and he's prepared his little speech. Verse 24. Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed, And I was afraid and went away and hid your town in the ground. See, I have what is yours. And then the master rebukes him. You wicked, lazy slave. Interesting there, lazy. So make no mistake, the issue is not the master. The issue is not somehow the master's cruel. The issue is the unfaithful lazy servant who thought only of himself who thought nothing of serving his master while he was away buried the talent in the ground and got on with his life had no regard for his master little love little thought and frankly probably didn't expect that he was ever coming back you wicked lazy slave You ought, verse 27, to have put my money at least in the bank. He's basically saying, look, the other guy's invested. Maybe their risk was a little higher. You could have at least put it in a savings account and made like 0.01 interest. At least I would have had like a little bit at the end. But no, you buried it. Judgment is severe. Verse 28, take the talent away from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's not the first time that Jesus has warned of that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, that place called hell. This third, believe, this third slave is, is no believer. He professed a certain loyalty and allegiance to the master, but he was shown to be a worthless, false slave. And the judgment is judgment of hell. What's the lesson for us? I think it's pretty plain. We are to be looking for the return of Jesus Christ with expectancy. And we are to be living as faithful stewards of, looking to make the most of the time I know the time is running this morning but I want to I I dial in on this for a minute or two or three how much time do you have left seriously how much time do you have left how old are you don't need to say it out loud how much time do you have left At most, maybe I've got 40. I seriously doubt it, the way that my health has been over the years. <laughs> I seriously doubt it. And I've buried enough people that I am very keenly aware. I don't know if I have another day. He says that's very dramatic. No, it's just I, I knew a pastor about 15 years ago had a Sunday school, he taught on the coming of Christ, <laughs> preached that morning, went home at the dinner table, and uh, I mean, I knew this guy, it was the same town, and um, at, the, at the lunch table, he slumped over, and he was gone, It's only about 60. You have no idea, I have no idea. All our health development, we're so thankful for advances in science and health, aren't we? How long do you have? the answer is you don't really know but at maximum at most the kids here at most you have eight decades or so and ask the older ones here it'll go by like that how much time do you have now here's the next question seriously right now between you and the lord what are you going to do with the time that you have left Now, hopefully, if you're married, you're going you're to love your spouse. But maybe some of us this morning, we need to tend to that a little bit more. If you're a professing Christian, if you're a believer, does the Lord Jesus want you to tend to your marriage? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How much time left do you have to do that? You don't know guys, especially for a moment, guys, we're so bad in this. We tend to think that our marriage is just something. It just happens to be. And you don't understand that your marriage is a duty given to you by God. That's part of your work, guys. That is part of your work. And when Jesus comes or you go to him, he's going to assess you if you're married How did you picture my love for my bride? Do you see? He's given you, for example, I'm just giving you one example this morning. He's given you a talent, an investment, an opportunity. I'm giving you an opportunity in the relationship that you are in to demonstrate something of what I am like, to honor me. I'm going to give you this woman. I'm going to give you this amount of time. What are you going to do with it? Your job. Your work is part of your serving God. It's not, you know, if you don't have a, if you're not a preacher, your work, you are, he's, he's made you responsible, men and women, each of us, whether we work in the home or outside the home, he's called us to serve one another. In other words, in the teaching of the expectancy of the second coming of Christ, we are not to sit around just studying eschatology and just speculating about his coming. We are those who look for his coming and we consider the various duties that God has given us in his word, the stewardship that Christ has given us, and we get about it for his glory. We really do do all that we do in our property, in our homes, in our relationships, in our business, in our finances. We seriously, no joke, do all that we do. We We manage all of that constantly with a mind. My Lord is coming. I can't control what I can't control. But what I do have stewardship of, I will do what I can with a mind so that when he returns, he will say to me, well done. That's all I want to hear. Well done. And unlike the view of this slave, I know that my master is gracious. He's kind. He knows I'm a sinner. I mean, I have to confess sins to him all the time. He knows who I am. He knows where I came from. He knows that. He still loves me. He still gives me a stewardship. He's not unreasonable. He's not demanding. He's just given me a life. He's given me his own life. He's given me his spirit. He's given me spiritual gifts. He's given me a church. He's given me a family. He's given me hands. He's given me a mind. And he gives it to me for a short period of time what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? It's short. And I'm telling you right now, this morning, we need some men and women, both young and old and older, who get off the foolish bridesmaid pattern and get on the faithful steward pattern. Who. Shut out the voices of this world calling us to be obsessed with here and now. Do you notice our culture doesn't deal with, dealt well with death? I mean, in our culture, Jesus isn't coming. Death doesn't exist. Just do what you can for the few little time you have, and, and that's it for yourself. We need to be ready for the coming of the Lord. May he find us faithful. Ask yourself this morning before we close. What am I going to do for my Lord? Am I ready for his coming? Have you been made right with him? Have you trusted in him? And if you have, if you were to assess your life right now and whatever time you have left, how are you going to make the most of it with what he's given you so that when he returns or you go to be with him, he will say, well done. make it really simple in closing there is only one reason only one thing a Christian lives for only one thing the reason we live is the reason we live everything we do is so that one day we might hear well done that's it that's it because if we hear well done from the mouth of our risen glorified king that's enough let's pray father we thank you for your son for his wise teaching we pray that your word this morning would search our hearts and our lives help us to be found among those who are wise and prudent and faithful in your son's name we ask amen